Welcome to Everyday Wellness Podcast. I'm your host, nurse practitioner, Cynthia Thurlow. This podcast is designed to educate, empower, and inspire you to achieve your health and wellness goals. My goal and intent is to provide you with the best content and conversations from leaders in the health and wellness industry each week and impact over a million lives. Today is a treat, and we are going to be connecting with one of my favorite neuroscience experts, Louisa Nicola. She's the host of an amazing podcast called The Neuro Experience, which is focused on brain health, neuroscience, longevity, and athletics. And she is at the intersection of neuroscience and athleticism. She helps to bring a fresh understanding to what it takes to truly achieve peak performance through science-based tools and methods. Today, we dove deep into her background and how an accident led to a career shift. We spoke at length about her three pillars that are evident for peak performance. We spoke at length about sleep, the impact of alcohol, the role of deep and REM sleep in the glymphatic system to help remove amyloids, strategies for better sleep, the role of the perimenopausal brain, the impact of chronobiology and sleep how to address jet lag, how exercise improves brain performance and health, including the role of irisin, which is a myokine, the best foods for brain health, the best supplements for brain health, and lastly, the role of creatine and brain performance. I hope you will enjoy this conversation as much as I did recording it, and I look forward to bringing Louisa on again in the near future. Well, Louisa, I've been so looking forward to this conversation. Welcome to Everyday Wellness. I'm so excited to be here. And likewise, I've been really looking forward to it. Yeah. So share with the listeners a bit about your background, because I know that you started as a competitive triathlete. You were this you know, incredible nationally, internationally recognized athlete, and then you had an accident and the trajectory of your life really shifted. Yeah, no, that's correct. So back in my younger days, I always say that was 40 pounds ago. I was a triathlete and, you know, it was my first love. And at the time I was doing an exercise physiology degree. So that's what I thought I was going to do. And I just loved the body. And uh, four weeks prior to going to Beijing, I had an accident. I was hit by a car and I was hospitalized and had a few broken bones, which I had to you know, get fixed up. But because of that, I had to forfeit my title. And during that recovery phase, which I was told, you know, I was first told you may not walk again. Then I was told, okay, you know, we'll, we'll get you up and running, but you're going to be in a critical condition. And I never let that get me down. I spent a lot of time obviously in rehab and in hospital, got myself back up and requalified for the championship series in Auckland. And I ended up qualifying obviously, and then coming 13th. So that's when I really understood that you don't have limitations. The only limitations are what is within your mind and in your brain. But Cynthia, it was during, so I had done exercise physiology. I'd gone through and done a master's degree. And funnily enough, my master's degree was in mathematical modeling. So it was a pure mathematics degree. And then during that, I was writing about neurons firing because I fell in love with the brain. And that then led into medicine and neurophysiology, which is, you know, rightfully so what I am today and what I do today. But I wanted to marry the two. I was an athlete and I, you know, I used to look out and think to myself, okay, there's amazing tennis players out there. There are amazing 
footballers and soccer players, why isn't anybody looking after their brain? And that's when I realized that there was a niche for neuroathletics, which is my company. So I kind of married the two elite performance and neurology put together. And that's where we live now at the intersection of those two. Well, I think it's such a beautiful you know, combination of two areas of interest of yours. And one of the things I love about you and, and your podcast and the information you share is that you take complicated subjects, but you put it in such a way that people can fully understand and appreciate brain physiology, hormones, all of these things that come together. And you speak quite a bit about these pillars of brain health and you know, I think starting from a place talking about sleep is of particular interest. You know, most of my listeners are north of 35 years old and sleep in many ways can suddenly become elusive, but let's unpack the physiology of sleep and it better explain things because as an example, I was speaking to a patient earlier this morning who used to get by on three to four hours a night of sleep and 20 oh, wow. years later, she's wondering why she's having you know, some of these issues of metabolic health, insulin sensitivity, and trying to explain to her that the research as I know it is we make our brains in our 60s, 70s and beyond in middle age. So if we're not taking care of ourselves, it can have a profound net impact on the way that our brains age and the degree of inflammation we experience. Yeah, you're completely right. We do make our brains, you know, our 60, 70 year old brains in our thirties and in our forties. So that's quite scary, right? Because when you look at the human brain, it starts to atrophy. Atrophy just means decrease in cell size. And it starts to decrease in cell size at the age of 30. And the wonderful thing is it doesn't have to be at an alarming rate. We can slow the progression of this atrophy through various lifestyle interventions. And the three pillars that I speak about which slow the progression of this atrophy is sleep, exercise, and nutrition. And we'll go into all of them, obviously starting with sleep. But I have to tell you that if you aren't looking after your brain in these ways and taking these three pillars into place, you will be up for a challenge. And one thing that was really prominent to me, I was just flying around the world. Literally, I went to Australia and then I went to LA, Sacramento, Vegas. It was, you know, I was on a little podcast tour myself and it just wreaked havoc on my circadian rhythm, on my hormones. Sorry to all the men listening, but uh, when you get a disruption in your circadian rhythm, the menstrual cycle gets put on hold. And then it's, you know, somebody who tracks it avidly like me at every date, and then becomes like you get it a week later. So, so many things are just disrupted due to circadian shifts and sleep deprivation. So, one really amazing thing about sleep is the way you want to think about it is we are going through a replenishment and repair process when we close our eyes and go to sleep, if we're doing it well. And unfortunately, around 70 to 80% of the US population isn't doing it too well. Some of us, that 70 to 80% is sedating themselves through THC or through alcohol, which they think they're sleeping through, but they're not. It's just sedation and they're not getting sleep. And the reason why sleep is so important is, and I'll try and break this down really easily, is for these two reasons. We have, we go through different cycles as we sleep. So we have, when we're falling asleep, it's, we have four cycles or four stages. When we're falling asleep is stage one. Stage two is when we're in light sleep. And then stage three and four are the most important. And we cycle through these four, literally 
all throughout the night. But we really want to focus on stage three and four. So stage three is our slow wave sleep or deep sleep. It's called slow wave because on an EEG, and this is out my primary tool of use as a neurophysiologist, an EEG, which is that cap that you put on your head. There's all these leads coming out of it, but assesses the brainwave activity. And when you're in deep sleep, the waves on the EEG are really big and long, and we call them slow wave sleep. And when you're in this stage of sleep, two particular things happen. One, we have the release of all of our hormones. I'm a female and, and so are you. And so most of our hormones during this stage is estrogen which we need, which is why mine, you know, it's evidently linked to the menstrual cycle, which is why mine, you know, may not have come on time because I was sleep deprived. Now, for men, a lot of the hormones that are released is testosterone. So it's an important stage of sleep. We need it for survival. We also get the release of growth hormone and growth hormone is a hormone responsible for growth and repair of muscle tissue and brain tissue, by the way. So Another thing that happens during this stage is we activate the glymphatic system. This is like a sewage system in our brain. And a really wonderful thing that happens is our brain cells shrink in size. The particular ones are called glial cells and they're like glue. It comes from the Greek word glue. They, they bind the other neurons together. They decrease in cell size and they allow for the cerebral spinal fluid to go through and wash the brain, literally like a sewage system. And I'm sure you've heard of that. Yeah. Yes. Oh, absolutely. (laughs) And it's funny how I talk about how important that is. It's like, you know, the trash services in our brain that aren't activated if you're chronically dealing with sleep deprivation. Yeah. And one of the things that it clears out amongst many different toxins and proteins is amyloid beta. And amyloid beta is one of the hallmarks of Alzheimer's disease. So you can then correlate, huh, if we aren't getting deep sleep, we're not activating this system. We're not activating the system. We're not getting the clearing of this protein. If we don't get the clearing of this protein, it's just going to build up. And I believe in compound interest, both in finances and in medicine and science. So that means it's just going to keep compounding and it's going to triple and then quadruple and just keep compounding and have this plaquing effect, which doesn't really, you don't get symptoms of it in your 30s, may not get symptoms in your 40s. Then bam, as soon as you hit your 50s, you start forgetting names. You start forgetting short-term memories, which is indicative of mild cognitive impairment. And that is a pre-dementia state. So we then think, wow. And then what happens if we still sleep deprive ourselves? we end up with neurodegeneration or neurodegenerative diseases such as Alzheimer's disease. That's why it's so important to sleep, not to mention REM sleep, which is the fourth stage that I mentioned. And this is characterized by rapid eye movement on an EEG, but really important because this is where our memory consolidation happens, but also our emotional first aid. So I work with a lot of high profile athletes. If they don't sleep well, and I check their sleep data every morning, I know that they're going to have a short fuse on that court. I know that they're going to break a racket at the Australian Open. So sleep is uh, the most underrated high performance tool that we have. Well, and it's interesting because I, you know, I'm coming at things as a clinician and I always say that sleep is foundational to our health and how many people out there have had patients tell me this over the years, I'll sleep when I'm dead. Sleep's not important. I can get more work done. My kids go to bed. I just get up earlier so I can go to the gym and more often than not, I'm, I'm having to remind them that, you know, I'm coming at it from a metabolic health perspective. And I remind them that if you're getting less than six hours a night of sleep, 
how that impacts blood sugar regulation, how that impacts your leptin and ghrelin signaling, how that impacts your food choices, how that impacts all these other things. And so I think it's so helpful to hear what's actually going on behind the scenes, if you will, in terms of sleep and brain physiology. Now, I know that you probably work with men and women, but what is it that's unique about the perimenopause shifts that are occurring, you know, physiologically, I think a lot of women perhaps don't understand that we have hormonal signaling in the brain between progesterone and estradiol and testosterone. And so as women are navigating these, you know, perimenopausal, the 10 to 15 years preceding menopause, it does have tremendous impact on sleep quality, but more often than not, we kind of make excuses. Oh, I just have more stress. Oh, it's something I ate. You know, the things you used to lean into that helped you sleep are no longer working. What are some of the common patterns? I know there may be less athletes in their forties and fifties, but what are some of the common things that you see in your female patients that are unique to them as opposed to men? You know, I said something really controversial last week, and this wasn't through my opinion. I actually read this in a neurology report as of 2023, they want to classify perimenopause as a brain disease. Now I want to be really careful with my wording. So, you know, a lot of women don't run out there and and start saying that they've got some type of brain disease. But let's look at the characteristics of perimenopause. They are brain fog. You know, this is what was listed in the neurology report. It was characteristic of brain fog, headaches, fluctuations in in hormones, sleep. I wouldn't say deprivation, but cyclic sleep. So, so, you know, one night, maybe it's bad. The other night you're, you know, up and the next night you're having a good sleep. So just different types of phases of sleep. And if you look at these, they are all characteristics of different forms of diseases of the brain. You know, when we think of brain fog, it just gets thrown around, but you have to think about, well, what really is brain fog? And I think that's why it's super important to understand the things that we can do for free, sleep, nutrition, sunlight, exercise, that can help aid in the penetration of naturally secreting hormones that can get infiltrated into the brain before we we go through and take, you know, exogenous hormones. Have you guys heard about a bioactive whole food on the market with 5,000 published research studies backing it? When my oldest son needed to go on antibiotics a few months ago, I discovered Armor colostrum and the benefits for him and his recovery from being on antibiotics have been instrumental in me now recommending this to my dairy non-sensitive patients and clients. Armor's colostrum strengthens immunity, ignites metabolism, fortifies gut health, promotes hair growth and skin radiance, and powers fitness performance and recovery. My son has mentioned to me over and over again how great his gut feels, how he has improved his digestion and gut function as well. Colostrum is a rich, exclusive source of immunoglobulins or antibodies that optimize our immune defense even during cold and flu season. And we know that mucosal barriers house over 80% of our body's immune cells, including including the antibodies IgG and SIG-A. And these immunoglobulins bind and intercept harmful particles like viruses, bacteria, and toxins, blocking them from crossing into the barriers into our bloodstream. And armrest colostrum contains the highest levels of SIG-A and IgG to ensure your most fortified first line of protection. It's sustainably sourced, and it's important to know that you want to mix colostrum only with cold liquids or foods or dry scoop it into your mouth 
mouth. This is also great for the oral microbiome. And we've worked out a special offer for my everyday wellness community where you can receive 15% off your first order. Go to try armra.com slash Cynthia 15 or enter Cynthia 15 to get 15% off your first order. That's T-R-Y-A-R-M-R-A.com slash Cynthia 15. You definitely want to check it out. Do you find yourself struggling to get a good night's sleep? If so, you may be dealing with a hidden mineral deficiency. It is not at all uncommon in perimenopause and menopause to deal with sleep challenges. And we know that one of many contributory reasons for poor sleep can be a reduction in specific minerals that help regulate sleep quality, including magnesium, which is involved in GABA, which is our body's main calming neurotransmitter. We also know that we need potassium to create melatonin. And this is a hormone that is a master antioxidant, but is also utilized to help induce sleep. We also think about things like zinc, which can balance excitatory neurotransmitters like glutamate. And if it's overactive, meaning if your glutamate levels are too high, it can prevent your brain from becoming more relaxed and inducing sleep. And lastly, selenium increases both our deep sleep and sleep duration. All these minerals matter a lot for sleep and any imbalances or deficits can have a major impact on the quality of sleep you get each night. And that's why I love Beam Minerals. They offer a full spectrum mineral supplement that gives you every essential mineral your body needs in the right doses, all in a highly absorbable liquid form. All you do is take a shot of bean minerals about an hour before bed. Don't worry, it tastes like water. And you'll replenish all of your body's minerals in about 30 seconds and give your brain what it needs for deep restorative sleep. I've been using this product over the last several months. I've really been impressed with the improvement in my sleep metrics, which I like to share on social media with my followers. And if you want a simple way to improve your sleep, head over to www.beaminerals.com and use code Cynthia for 20% off your first order. That's www.beaminerals.com and use code Cynthia for 20% off your first order. Yeah, it's interesting because I, I'm obviously of the belief system. I'm both allopathic and functionally trained. And, you know, the methodology is this kind of in a more traditional mindset is it, there's a one size fits all. And I oftentimes will say to women, there are like 10 things we need to do before we even get to supplements, before we start getting to bioidenticals, before we start getting to medication. But in many ways, allopathic medicine does things backwards. It's like, let's give you a pill to treat the sleep before we give you a pill to address the insulin resistance, before we give you a pill to address the hormonal imbalances. And so I think it's really interesting that that journal is effectively referring to this middle-aged transition as a disease state. And it's interesting. I just had Dr. Amy Killen on last month and she was calling menopause a disease state. She's like, let's call it what it is. It is a de facto point in time when women are inflamed, there's a great deal of oxidative stress and it doesn't have to be that way because the Mm. net impact of that menopausal transition is changes in our rates of heart disease, bone issues, brain health issues. And so there are many camps, if you will, and and there's no judgment on my part, but there are people who feel like they have to do this a la naturel. And then there are people who are open to different types of interventions, but I I find the brain physiology piece as women's brains are aging, particularly of interest. And I'm sure 
you're well familiar with Dr. Lisa Moscone. I think her book scared the bejeebers out of me. You know, if there was anything that completely allowed me to fully embrace the fact that, you know, most, if not all of us really do benefit from having some degree of bioidentical hormone support, it was that book. And she's looking at women's brains. She's actually looking at, you know, both people that are still alive and then looking at, you know, postmortem brains and looking at the changes that are going on physiologically. And I, I think this is kind of a unique, obviously your work, her work is really important for helping people fully understand what's happening as we get older. Yeah. And one thing to keep you know, in mind when we're talking about the brain, it is the most vascular rich organ in the entire body. That means that it has the most amount of vasculature. So blood vessels, capillaries, veins, all of these infiltrate the brain and they have different responsibilities. So if we think about our heart, okay, our heart shoots out the blood and obviously the blood returns to the heart. But in terms of the brain, we have two main arteries that shoot out from the heart and go into the brain. We have the carotid artery at the front here. Then we have the vertebral arteries at the back and they go in and all the other little arteries branch off there. Our capillaries which, by the way, um, I was told on a podcast last week that in America you say Capillary. capillaries. Yeah, mm-hmm. I'm from Australia, guys. But um, <laughs> capillaries are one cell thick, so they're really. It's we've got to look after those because once they get damaged, which is very easy to do, once they get damaged, they die off. We can't really regenerate them. We can, it's called angiogenesis, but it's really hard to do. So we want to preserve the amount of vasculature that is in our brain. So one thing that I don't think we're talking about, which is starts to happen at around, you know, the perimenopause stage. If we're thinking around, we're thinking what, 48? What, I would just that- say 35 to 40 is when that stage kind of starts. So 48, I would say typically latter stages of perimenopause. Wow. Okay. So that stage. So when we think about that, we think about blood pressure. And what I think is alarming is the fact that a lot of people are only checking their blood pressure once a year when they get their yearly physical. We should be checking it each day because these fluctuations in high blood pressure causes the collapse of these tiny capillaries in the brain. So what does that mean? That means that we're getting less oxygen and less nutrients to the brain via blood. So that's pretty scary too. Well, and it's interesting because my whole background as an NP was in cardiology and we would do lots of carotid artery scans, vertebral arteries, you know, in cardiology, we're always looking at at vessels, but what Luis is really referring to are these tiny little tributaries that contribute to these larger vessels in the body. And if they are dying off and if they're diseased, it becomes this long net word effect where, you know, we now recognize that a large contributor to high blood pressure is insulin resistance. And with the bulk of the population already being insulin resistant, checking your blood pressure once a year is not enough. We should really be monitoring it in greater intervals. Now, when we're speaking about brain health, you know, you kind of alluded to that you've had this recent issues related to jet lag. So let's Let's talk about what jet lag is, what we can do to combat it, because I got a lot of questions of people saying just flying out to the West Coast can be disruptive. I can't even imagine being 12 or 14 hours ahead and then coming back to the States that would be hugely impactful on how you're feeling. 
yeah, I'm uh, suffering. I don't think it's very good for my health. I know it's not good, but jet lag is, you know, the change in our natural circadian rhythm. And it can be thrown off from East Coast to West Coast in the States, but also for people who are like me traveling 24 hours to get to another country. And it's characterized by, you know, not being able to fall asleep, chronically sleep deprived, brain fog, and it's like we've got to think about ways of actually mitigating the effects of these. And what's interesting is we can get jet lag and we don't even have to get on a plane. If you sleep deprive yourself for one night, you may wake up and have the exact same symptoms of a person who is jet lagged. So what are some of the things that we can do to help us from that? Well, other than getting on apps and setting your which is what I do. I have an app and I put my plane times and everything like that. And it helps me throughout the day. One of the things that I find works really well on a plane, if you can, is first of all, hydrating. So we have low pressure on this plane. We need to be able to hydrate more than what we do when we're not in a plane. So that's the first thing that's going to help you with jet lag. The second thing is minimizing how much food that you're having on a plane. One of the biggest reasons why we actually get jet lag is because of the food that we eat on a plane. So either taking your own food or not eating at all, which is really hard. I try and do it. I'm able to do it from New York to LA and then I eat in LA. And then I I probably just eat once on the um, LAX to Sydney flight home. In terms of supplementation, I have found that if you can sleep, like, I always say that sleep isn't like a debt that you can pay to the bank, but if you can uh, maximize on sleep before getting on a plane, it helps you out a lot because we all know that you're going to be more than likely sleep deprived no matter where you go. Even if you do quote unquote sleep, it's not going to be the best, most restorative sleep. So you want to be able to get as much sleep before getting on that plane. But when you do, and you do, if you do fly at night, you may want to think about supplementing and sleeping with a sleep mask, putting some earbuds in your ears, sleeping with a pillow, whatever you can do to sleep. But some of the things that I like is phosphatidylserine and magnesium L3 and 8. I have magnesium L3 and 8 and it works really well. And I have GABA. So these are just some of the things that I have in my toolkit that get me prepared to sleep. But one other thing that I want to point out is one of the biggest reasons for insomnia as we get older is stress. So our activation of the sympathetic nervous system can jolt us out of sleep and wake us up. So managing stress, especially on these long flights, is uh, really imperative as well. I think that's really invaluable. And it's interesting because I have some of those things in my toolkit. I Sometimes I will fast longer. I mean, I, I will endeavor to eat before I go or wait until I get to my destination. You know, nowadays, even in most instances, you're actually not getting real food. I feel like people get handed boxes of junk, which is usually, you know, heavy on the carbs, heavy on the highly processed foods, which are not going to contribute to good sleep. Have you read any information on inositol or myo-inositol being beneficial for jet lag? Inositol especially, yeah. And I would be lying if I said that I hadn't tried it before. I have. It's just not in my routine because I think if I'm already doing well on something, but what I think works well is when I had the inositol, I wasn't having phosphatidylserine. So maybe having one or the other and just doing whatever you can and to just stick with a plan instead of just keep adding and adding and adding. One thing you'd probably realize I didn't mention in there was melatonin. I actually don't have this. It For one, it knocks me around too much. 
Two, it is a hormone at the end of the day. So we need to be careful with uh, having exogenous hormones, just like I'm not, you know, having exogenous estrogen or testosterone. Uh, So we have to be careful with how much we're putting in there. And due to the fact that when we land in our destination, we want to get on the time, you know, on wherever we are on that time as soon as possible and delaying that because of melatonin is just going to throw us off off our mark. That's a great point. And it's interesting. I do take melatonin, not when I'm traveling, however, because again, to your point, you don't want to get off the plane and be trying to metabolize off melatonin and really struggling. It's interesting. I was telling someone recently that I started using a a new type of melatonin and it had both a sustained and an acute onset. And so I was explaining that I had taken too much. And the next morning, what I did was I went right outside, got sunlight exposure on my retinas because I knew that would help suppress some of this, you know, exogenous melatonin I had taken so that I could kind of start getting my cortisol back up and start getting my day started. Now, are you a fan when you get to your destination to take a nap or do you just power through your day, which is what I typically do, and then just go to bed a little earlier? Like I will try to keep myself moving and awake as much as possible. Yeah. When I went to LA, this was when I landed in LAX from Sydney. So that was a 13 and a half hour flight and it was 6.30 in the morning. So I had to, and I didn't sleep at all on the plane. Sometimes it's a hit and miss. Sometimes I sleep, sometimes I don't, but this time I didn't sleep. So I stayed up all day in LA. It was traumatizing, but I was thankful for it because if I slept, then I probably wouldn't have slept at night. So I'm a fan of doing that. And when you look at the scientific literature, the best way to accustom yourself to a new time zone is by sunlight, obviously, number one, but also exercising. It signals different things to your brain that says, I'm awake, release the cortisol, keep me up. This is a time of day that we work out. So yeah, I uh, try and stay up the entire day. Oh, that's impressive. Especially if you weren't able to sleep properly on the plane. And I know that's not any fun. Now, one of the more common things that I start seeing in terms of lifestyle that women will do as they're navigating perimenopause and menopause is that they start having trouble sleeping and they start using alcohol as a means of falling asleep. But let's talk about the science about not only what alcohol does to the brain, but the net impact it provides to sleep, which everything that I've read in for this interview is not a positive thing. Yeah. Alcohol. I put up this post yesterday on Instagram and it just went viral. And I think people, I think it hit a nerve with some people. And as said, I know this is going to be a hard pill to swallow, but no amount of alcohol is good for the brain. And I don't know where we started to think that it was. So let's talk about in the awake state. And what we're doing is you're actually killing off these wonderful things that make up our brain. We've got 87 billion neurons in the brain. And with these 87 billion neurons, we've got around 15,000 to 30,000 connections per neuron. You have to think the amount of activity that is happening in the brain just to keep us up and awake and active. And when we drink, we're killing off these neurons. It doesn't matter if it's one drink or 10 drinks. Obviously, if it's 10 drinks, it's a lot more. So you are killing your brain cells when you drink. So there is no benefit to it. The active ingredient in alcohol is ethanol. This is like a sedative. We have sedatives such as propofol when we go into surgery and it sedates you. So instead of thinking that it's putting you to sleep, it's sedating you. So it's knocking you out. So it's kicking you out of REM sleep and kicking you out of deep sleep. So you're sedated, you're low level 
asleep, if you will, at night, which you're not asleep, and you don't get into these stages. So you don't get the replenishment that we need that we were speaking about earlier. You know, it's interesting. I've spoken very openly that I've never been a big drinker. I was never very interested in drinking alcohol, got made fun of it in my teens and 20s. And during the pandemic, I said to my husband, I was only a social drinker. And with having no social life during the pandemic, it made me realize I was like, why am I drinking? It's the only thing that gives me hot flashes. It's clearly not working for me. And it's amazing to me, the more I start talking about the fact that I don't drink alcohol, the more I realize there are a lot of people in the health and wellness space that don't drink alcohol for a variety of reasons. Mm. And yet to me, you know, this kind of information just reaffirms why we have to be careful about our choices. And to your point, I think I had a reels probably a couple months ago, and it was amazing to see the visceral reactions that people were, you know, leaning into this reel and me talking about what it was doing physiologically and how many people were like, oh yeah, I stopped drinking alcohol because of this, this, and this, and oh, this person stopped drinking alcohol. And then you get a few people that get triggered by posts like that. And you just say, you know, I'm just trying to provide good information much to your point as well. I think Huberman did a podcast, maybe it was in September or October, and I was sharing it with a colleague and my colleague said, you know, my spouse is such an avid wine drinker. I'm not sure I can even get them interested in listening to this. And I said, all you can do is just, you know, provide information. We're here to educate and inspire people and help them understand what's going on physiologically with the brain. And it was interesting when I was, you know, kind of looking at the research in preparation for today, you had said that damaging effects to the prefrontal cortex, which is our executive function part of the brain and rewiring of neural circuitry are reversible with two to six months of abstinence for most social and casual drinkers. Chronic users will partially recover, but likely will feel long lasting effects. Can you explain like why that actually happens? You know, why the longtime users are going to have permanent impact on brain health and physiology? You know, it's interesting because when you look at the studies on chronic smokers, right, we know how detrimental smoking is for health. But did you know that abstinence from smoking or cessation of smoking over a five-year period can reverse and you can go back to zero just with that one cessation? So it's really, that's amazing. But let's talk about Well, first of all, when we talk about the killing of the neurons in the prefrontal cortex, our prefrontal cortex sits just here, you know, it's part of the frontal lobe and that's the newest member of the family, the newest member of the brain family and the biggest. And when I say biggest, I don't just mean in volume, I mean in neural circuitry. So it's got, it houses the most amount of neurons, which is why when we drink, we get lowered cognitive functions. Our cognitive functions are reaction time, thinking, focus, attention, memory, these things. They live just here in the prefrontal cortex. If we're killing off the neurons and killing off the connections, evidently we're going to have a lower cognitive status or cognitive ability. And so that's the first part of what we just said. And they can recuperate. Okay, if we have just a casual drink the next day, if we sleep and exercise and hydrate, we can, you know, get back on the bandwagon. Because let me just say, I'm not a complete party pooper, complete downer. One drink probably won't have an effect. Let's just call it what it is. The studies that I mentioned speak about the effects coming from seven drinks a week. Seven drinks could be one a day. It could be seven all in one day. Whatever it is, it's just seven drinks. That's where we're talking, okay? That's when these processes start to happen. Let's double that and let's talk about eight drinks a week. That then becomes, and this is for a female, so 14 drinks for a female and 14 drinks a week for a male. So 
that's when it starts to become more than moderate. We move out of the moderate stage and we move into the chronic stage. And that's when we start to see irreversible damage. Because when we kill off areas of the brain, this happens in a stroke, okay? If we have a stroke, a stroke is literally a cerebral infarct, which is an occlusion of a blood vessel, occlusion, a blocking of that blood vessel. If we block it, therefore, the blood cannot be delivered to that area of the brain. Therefore, the cells in that area die and we do not regenerate. We don't have neurogenesis. The only part neurogenesis has a place is in the hippocampus. So when we kill off that area of the brain during a stroke or during heavy drinking, the brain tissue does not grow back. What happens is the areas around it, they're called the subregions of which area has been killed off, that grows back stronger to try and compensate, but you don't fully get back that part that you've killed off in the first place. It's really interesting because sometimes in the heart, you'll get collateralization. If there's been an infarct or a death in a myocyte, sometimes you'll get collateralization of blood vessels. So it sounds like there's this compensatory mechanism in response to a CVA or a cerebral vascular accident. Yeah. I, you know, cardiologists hate when I say this, but I always say that the brain's more important than the heart. <laughs> but look- I can imagine. Yes. You know, cardiologists tend to be, you know, very myopic. You know, the heart is the most important organ in the body. I just want to point out that when we you know, there is something beautiful when it comes to the heart. We have something called cardiac remodeling, where when we exercise and we generate more blood flow and we exercise the muscles of our heart, they get stronger, they get thicker. And that is called cardiac remodeling. And I love that because what happens is when our heart beats, it pumps blood with every beat. And if our ventricles are stronger, because remember our blood vessels have muscles, if they get stronger, therefore for every heartbeat, we can pump out more blood. With more blood that goes to the tissues, to the lungs, to the brain, to every organ in our body, it delivers more oxygen per beat. So if we can get a stronger heart, then we can get stronger blood flow with every beat. So I love that when it comes to uh, heart health. Absolutely. And this is probably a great time to kind of shift the conversation and talk about the value of exercise as it pertains to brain health. And it's interesting, you know, to me, I always learn so much. And I was telling Louisa before we started having a conversation that I don't subscribe to a lot of newsletters, but I do subscribe to yours because there's some nugget every single time I receive the newsletter, which is a few times a week that I take away and I'm able to actually utilize effectively in my practice and in my business. So let's talk about what types of exercise impact brain health and why a variety of different types of exercise are so important. So exercise is fundamentally out of the three pillars, I think the most important for a number of reasons. So when we talk about exercise, we're talking about aerobic activity, which is like your long distance running, your power walking, your cycling. And then we've got resistance training, which is your weights, any form of resistance against the muscles. And then we've also got neuroathletics training, which is the cognitive training, reaction time, processing speed, memory drills. So let's first look at aerobic training. What does it do? Well, over an extended time, let's say 45 minutes of aerobic physical activity, your exercising the muscles of the heart. That's one. But what you're also doing is you're getting an infiltration of a hormone that 
this hormone gets secreted and it goes into your bloodstream and then up into your brain. And that is called BDNF. It's a hormone, but it's also a myokine. And it stands for brain-derived neurotropic factor. And when you exercise, when you get the release of that, which is you get a massive, robust release of BDNF, BDNF signals to different areas in the brain and it, it tells it to grow new neurons in the hippocampus. So there was um, a study that was done, one of the first studies on rodents that showed that six months of wheel running or aerobic physical activity grows new neurons in the hippocampus. More studies on the exact same type of models showed that you can starve off Alzheimer's disease by 20 years from doing physical activity, a minimum of 20 minutes a day, which is amazing. Not to mention that if you're doing aerobic physical activity in zone two, which is around 65% of your maximum heart rate, you're training the mitochondria of the cells, more mitochondria you know, which is mitochondrial biogenesis can help in the longevity process. It can actually help. One thing that I'm starting to discover now is the relationship of exercise and fertility. And this is because I've been reading a lot now about athletes who went through, and this is probably more your area. It's not my area. I'm learning about it though. Athletes who had amenorrhea, is that how we Mm -hmm. call it? Uh, They didn't have their period during their Olympic stages. And then they're having births or they're falling pregnant around 39, 40. And I was really interested in that. And then it got me down the rabbit hole of exercise and then mitochondrial health and how mitochondria is linked to fertility and that we have mitochondria in the ovum. So I went down this rabbit hole. This is literally a a week ago. So that's another area to love, but let's stick to the brain. So that's aerobic activity. Then let's move on to resistance training, which is my niche. And resistance training offers an abundance and I, if not more beneficial effects than aerobic training. So when we're doing forms of resistance against the muscle, and I'm talking, you've got to have a heavy load. So let's just take a bench press or a squat, for example. We're doing a number of things. First of all, let's focus on the legs because they're the biggest in terms of vector size, the biggest muscle groups in the body. When we're exercising the muscles, they're pushing against our veins. Now, our veins are not like our arteries. They don't have muscles. What they are is they're a one-directional pump. So we have to squeeze them in order to get the muscle, in order to get the blood pushing through the vein, which then goes up into the vena cava, which then goes into the lungs. We need to be pushing that. And when we do resistance training, our muscles are squeezing together and pushing up the blood through our veins. So that's one thing. We're getting adequate blood flow. The next thing we're getting is we're getting a release of myokines. I mentioned it earlier. We have BDNF during aerobic training, but my God, we have a million times more. And the newsletter that went out last night focused on two myokines, interleukin-6 and irisin. And just to mention, we've got 611 discovered myokines. So we have the release of these myokines. And when myokines are released from skeletal muscle, they go into the bloodstream. And when they go into the bloodstream, they travel up, they cross our blood-brain barrier, which is a unique structure in and of itself. It crosses the blood-brain barrier. And depending on which type of myokine it is, let's take irisin, for example. Irisin is a messenger molecule. It was actually named after the Greek god of Iris, who was a messenger to the god. And irisin does the same thing. It's my favorite and it's the sexiest hormone on the market right now when it comes to myokines. It goes in and as a messenger, it will tap on the walls, if you will. And it will say, hey, BDNF, 
I need you to work a bit harder BDNF. And so BDNF then gets expressed even more. And then BDNF is like, okay, guys, Irison's here. Let's go into the hippocampus and let's grow new neurons. Let's get to work. So that's how irisin works. And irisin also binds to receptors in the frontal lobe. And when it does that, it knocks on those little areas and says, hey, executive functions, I'm here. I'm the Greek God. I need you guys to work on reaction time. I need you there. I need you guys to be picking up attention. Hey, focus. I need you to be picking up your game. So it has so many effects. It's a wonderful hormone. But here's the caveat. You have to be lifting hard. You can't just go into the gym, lift a, a little tiny little weight, which I see women doing all the time. Sorry. I don't know why. So you have to be lifting at 75% of your maximum one repetition max. So if you're able to squat a hundred kilos for argument's sake, that means you should be working at, you should be having 70 kilos, okay, or 75 kilos, which is 75% of a hundred kilos on that weight. And you should be doing around six reps, six to eight reps if you can. That's a heavy load. So the heavier, the more robust the release of myokines. A great deal about our focus on everyday wellness is on supporting gut health. And one of my new favorite ways to recommend to family and friends and even clients is to consider colostrum. And so Equip Foods has an amazing product that helps to improve immunity and gut health and recovery. And each scoop contains grass-fed, pasture-raised, antibiotic-free colostrum. And if you're wondering what colostrum is, it's a nutritional powerhouse that serves as the first source of nutrition for mammals in nature. It's been shown to enhance immune function, gut health, and recovery with vital nutrients such as lactoferrin, growth factors, and prolon-rich polypeptides. Colostrum is a natural milk-like fluid produced by mammals immediately following delivery of the newborn. And while colostrum is a dairy product, it does not contain milk or lactose. So most people with lactose intolerance usually find colostrum very easily digestible and beneficial to gut health. You can use one scoop a day. You can mix it in things like coffee or mix it in shakes or even yogurt or even some of your baked food recipes. As I mentioned, has a lot of health benefits, including research demonstrating the improvement in a reduction in inflammation, promoting good gut flora, and supporting restoring leaky gut to normal permeability. And what I love best is that Equip Foods is very ethically focused. Their cows are humanely raised and ethically treated, and cows produce an excess of colostrum when nursing. So only after their babies get what they need are they able to source the excess colostrum for use in their products. There is three grams of colostrum in each scoop and one serving in comparison to main competitors has just one gram. And research demonstrates that this dose of three grams actually promotes more benefits to gut health, immune function, recovery, and vitality. So if you'd love to take care of your health, you can go to www.equipfoods.com slash Cynthia20 to get 20% off your first order. That's www.equipfoods.com eQIP foods.com slash Cynthia 20. You definitely want to check this out. 
Americans spend an average of 90% of their time indoors and take about 20,000 breaths a day. The indoor air that we breathe is two to five times more polluted than outdoor air, and in some circumstances, up to 100 times more polluted, according to the EPA. And did you know that air pollution is responsible for nearly 7 million premature deaths globally? So what's the solution? I want to introduce you to a product by Air Doctor that has captured the attention of established media outlets like CNN, ABC, and more. Air Doctor filters out 99.99% of dangerous contaminants so that your lungs don't have to. This includes pollutants such as allergens, pollen, pet dander, dust mites, mold spores, and even bacteria and viruses that have the potential to go on and make us sick. Air Doctor comes with a 30-day, breathe-easy, money-back guarantee. So if you don't love it, just send it back for a refund minus shipping. Head to airdoctorrow.com and use code CYNTHIA. You'll receive up to $300 off air purifiers. Exclusive to podcast customers, you will also receive a free three-year warranty on any unit which is an additional $84 in value. Look at the special offer by going to A-I-R-D-O-C-T-O-R-P-R-O.com and use promo code Cynthia. I absolutely love my air filters. They're an integral component to ensuring that the air that my family breathes in our home is as safe as possible. I think it's really interesting and for listeners to know that I had written about the role of irisin. One of the things it does, it increases the uptake of glucose and skeletal muscle. So for me, I was thinking about the fact as I was lifting heavy legs, I do two leg days a week. I was thinking about and reflecting on our conversation today, hoping that you would talk about this specific type of myokine. And certainly I think for a lot of individuals, we're still stuck in the mindset of uh, strength training is to change body composition and to lose weight. And we're here to talk about why it's so important to understand that it's systemic effects from strength training, from aerobic training, et cetera. And the net impact on brain health is quite significant. And let me just end this by saying that we've got structural changes of the brain. We've got functional changes of the brain. Functioning refers to how well your brain's functioning. Brain wave patterns may change. Different areas of the brain may not be working or lighting up under an MRI, fMRI, and they will. So that's this functional part. The structural is the growth and birth of new neurons. It's the shape. It's the way it's structured. And guess what? Not I would say 80% of brain gray matter is modifiable by exercise. And we need to also learn that for aging populations, my parents, for example, I went home and every we only have one fight a year. It's when I'm there and we fight about their medical records and their exercise status. And, you know, my mom said to me, Louisa, we walk all the time. We are, we're walking around the house. I'm doing the washing. Your father's out there gardening with me. I'm like, that's great. That's actually not exercise. So I've been differentiating now and being cautious by not saying physical activity, because the guidelines actually state it is not due to physical activity that you get these structural and functional brain changes. It's due to exercise. Now, physical activity is anything other than sitting down, static. Before we got on this call, I got up, I went and got some water, I went to the bathroom. That's physical activity. That's not exercise. So everybody listening, I'm like Miss Trunchbull. 
You have to be exercising. You have to break a sweat and you don't need to be doing this. You don't need to have data-driven results. You don't need to be wearing a whoop strap. The way you should monitor it is for physical activity, uh, for aerobic activity, you should be able to speak to someone, but not be able to finish a sentence. So not too hard where you're dying, but just enough that you're breaking a sweat and you can't really have a full-on conversation. And for weights, you should be aiming for three times a week. Cynthia's doing amazingly. She's doing two leg workouts a week, which is incredible. And you should be aiming at doing four different types of exercises for lower body and around six reps if you can. No, that's so helpful. And also reassuring to help people understand what defines exercise and what defines just, we used to call them activities of daily living. Like you're doing the laundry, you're vacuuming, yeah. you know, you walk your dog, which obviously those things are important, but that's not going to you know be the largest metric that's going to impact brain health. Let's talk about this other pillar, talking about nutrition as it pertains to brain health. There were a lot of questions that came in specific to this, you know, people really wanting to fully understand the net impact of food choices and how this positively or negatively impacts their brain health. Well, by the way, I'm not a nutritionist, but what I do know is nutrition affects everything from mood, which is more the psychological side when it comes to brain health, but also how well we're feeding our brain. I'm a big proponent of what I talk about is ingesting EPA and DHA, which is omega-3 fatty acids. You mentioned earlier that women in the perimenopause stage is has a, a higher rate of inflammation. Is that correct? Yes. Okay. And oxidative stress, yeah. And oxidative stress. Inflammation is a, a huge risk factor for Alzheimer's disease. We can have vasculitis, which is inflammation of the vascular system. When we have inflammation, this can you know, result in the death of some of these tiny little blood vessels that I mentioned earlier. But inflammation is interesting because we can help regulate it. And one of the ways that we can do this via nutrition is with the ingestion of EPA and DHA. So omega-3 fatty acids, they come from fatty fish like salmon, mackerel, and they're made up of three parts, EPA, DHA, and ALA. And the brain, the cells of the brain and the cells of the body love these. First of all, they help with membrane fluidity. So we have a membrane, the outer layer of our cells. We've got trillions of cells in the human body, and then we've got billions of cells in the human brain. And in order for them to move around, which is what they do, they need to be fluid and so they don't get stuck together. EPA, DHA helps with that. They also help with lowering inflammation. So I have actually funny enough, if you're watching on YouTube or wherever this is, but I've got my EPA DHA right here. I have two grams in the morning and two grams at night. Our brain is also made of fat. There's so much controversy around this. Is it made of cholesterol? It's actually not made of cholesterol. Cholesterol molecule is big. It doesn't cross the blood-brain barrier. It's made up of a fat DHA, which is also highly controversial too. But look, your brain is made of you know both fat and water mainly, and then proteins as well and lipids. So we want to be feeding it what it's made of. And, and this DHA is really important for our brain. And I love that. So that's my stance when it comes to nutrition. But I also don't subscribe to a plant-based diet. I'm an everything girl. I eat red meat. I eat plants. Sometimes it doesn't sit well with people. 
Well, anyone listens to my podcast knows I'm very pro being an omnivore, that it's important to have animal-based protein and certainly fatty fish is beneficial. Is there any research or do you lean into the concerns about seed oils, you know, canola oil, soybean oil, which kind of proliferate here in the United States and the research suggesting that it damages our cellular membranes for a significant amount of time? I think I remember Dr. Kate Shanahan said maybe it's two years it damages that phospholipid bilayer of the cell. Okay. <laughs> There's so much seed oil information happening right now on Instagram. I don't think it's obviously, I think everyone's ingesting it. If you don't, then, you know, if you go out for dinner, you are ingesting it. I don't care what anybody says, you are. So that's the first thing. Depending on the amount that you're having, obviously the dose makes the poison. If you're going out every night, it's going to have an effect on you. I don't think we need to be worried to the point where we need to be scared about rancid oils in our homes, et cetera. I think if you're just sticking to extra virgin olive oil and sticking to, you know, what I like to prescribe is the mind diet, which is the Mediterranean dash diet. And it's made up of olive oil, green leafy vegetables, moderate amount of fish, a little bit of red meat, grains nuts, seeds. So these are what we can be having for a healthy aging brain. I don't go too into the weeds of the tiniest, like seed oils. I just don't go there because I don't really have that much seed oil. Yeah. It's interesting. I was, I think it was Ben Bickman was saying that the most frequently consumed fat in the United States right now is soybean oil. And it's because of it's so encompassing in a lot of the processed foods. And when you go out to out and have meals, whether it's what your food's cooked in or the sauces that it provides, we're just exposed to it. So if you eat outside your home, more than likely you are exposed. I do agree with that. Just a few more questions because I want to be respectful of your time, especially since I know you are recovering from all this recent yeah. travel. There were a few questions that came in about TBI, so traumatic oh, brain yeah. injuries. And I would imagine that some of your athletic patients are impacted by this. Are there specific recommendations? Now, again, generalize, you're not working with anyone specifically that's listening to this podcast, but general high-level things that people can be thinking about if they or a loved one are impacted by a TBI. Yeah. TBIs are horrible traumatic brain injuries. And they can come in the form of a concussion, for example, which I've seen several people who have had concussions and it's scary. So how can we mitigate the effects of TBIs? Well, we can start with the aging. Let's just say, because the number one cause of hospitalizations from the age of, I think it's 80 and above, I think that's the report, is comes from falls. Okay. And head traumas. I think it was actually head traumas at that age come from falls. And this is the reason why we need to be building up leg strength, especially starting in the 40s. If you can start earlier, great. Really important to strengthen the body so you don't get those falls. So you can mitigate the aging process and your chances of getting a TBI by just strengthening the lower extremities. Next, that is, even if you're young, let's just say you're a football player or a soccer player, because soccer players do get head injuries as well. How can we help that? First of all, the brain, when it's in that state, it's in that hypermetabolic state when you, it's really, you, the brain is like, it's three pounds of jello. And people think that the skull, the fluid around the brain protects it. But the fluid around the brain that's, you know, it sits in between the skull and the actual brain is not viscous. It's not protective. It's just like water. So when you hit, depending at which velocity and how hard, how much the force is that you get hit, your brain is wobbling. And when it's doing that, 
Okay. It's got all these metabolites that are just getting thrown out of the place. And that ends up causing problems. If you get hit really hard, it causes neuronal death in that area and maybe other things as well. So if we can mitigate that by having a high fat diet, one amazing study that was published in Nature uh, showed that with a post-traumatic insult, having a high fat diet helps mitigate the effects, long-term effects of a TBI, high fat diet in the form of exogenous ketones or a ketogenic diet. So that's one thing. The next thing is we have something called cognitive reserve and cognitive reserve is like a, is like fuel. Okay. So over the years, we want to build up as much cognitive reserve we had. So when our brain goes to war, its tank is full. Where we build that up is by having a lot of sleep, by protecting it with not having THC, which is what I tell a lot of my players every day, which sometimes they don't want to listen to me. I'm, I'm trying to tell them just because it's not affecting you now, you want to be able to think to yourself, if I come up against another player and I get hit, I need to be in the best position possible to recover from that. So treating your brain as if you're going to war is a good analogy. So having a high fat diet, getting a lot of sleep, hydrating with electrolytes as well, and water obviously is really important too. That's super helpful. And it's interesting, although beyond the context of our conversation today, at some point, I'd love to hear more about what THC does to the developing brain. So these, you know, young athletes, young adults that are assuming this is this benign entity, but I want to end our conversation talking about a supplement that I know we both embrace and really are huge proponents of. Let's talk about creatine monohydrate, which admittedly I've been using for the last year and I always say that if as a middle-aged person, if I can be making gains in the gym week to week, that says a lot, a great deal of it's, you know, the sleep and the nutrition, but I do fervently believe that creatine is, has really been instrumental. And I know you talk about this quite a bit in your research and your newsletters that go out, but when did you start working with creatine or got interested in creatine as an adjunct to brain health? This was probably around 18 months ago and Oh, maybe yeah, two years, 18 months ago, because I wanted to understand how can I help post-stroke patients? So I started to get into uh, creatine monohydrate around 18 months ago, mainly because I was working with a lot of stroke patients and I wanted to understand how can we help speed up the recovery of these stroke patients. And I saw, I also had a Parkinson's disease patient and I saw a lot of literature around the benefits of creatine on Parkinson's disease. And I went down this rabbit hole and that's when I was really putting out content saying that, hey guys, creatine isn't just for the neck down, which is the body and for physical performance. It's also for brain performance because you think about why are we having it? We're having it for increased ATP production, correct? Which helps with the energy that is produced in the cell so we can push harder at the gym from a bodybuilding perspective so we can push harder and heavier for longer, which means we'll get bigger and grow more muscle. The brain is the same. We need, and as we get older, we have a lower affinity to produce ATP. And obviously with creatine is obviously naturally occurring already. We have it, but it gets decreased as we get older or if we've had a TBI. So I'm huge in creatine. I'm huge about putting it out there for women because there's this myth around we I'm going to get big and bulky. And rightfully, you know, when it pushes more water into the mus into the actual cell, you can feel 
bulkier. Yes. But we can monitor that. Maybe have three grams a day instead of five. Maybe cycle it. Maybe have five grams a day for seven days and then come down to two grams a day. Either way, it's having an effect. And this is having an effect across the lifespan. I've started to give my parents it, although at the start they thought I was giving them drugs, but we learned what it was at home. We did some education. So it helps the brains of elderly individuals, especially post-stroke patients. It helps with starving off neurodegenerative diseases. It's been widely implicated in diseases like Parkinson's disease. And I have to tell you, everyone should be taking it. They are my two, the two best things you can take in my opinion is creatine and omega-3 fatty acids. I love that. And it's interesting because there's even gender variables that are at play with creatine monohydrate, you know, in terms of our needs in depending where we are in our menstrual cycle, whether it's the follicular phase or luteal phase, and then the needs of women heading into perimenopause and menopause when muscle protein synthesis is not working as effectively with this loss of estrogen signaling. And so for me, I love, and I've been, as I said before, been listening to and following you for a long time. So it's really nice to have that affirming message that comes from someone other than myself. Well, I could talk to you for hours. Hopefully this is the first of a two-part series that we will put together on the podcast. Please let listeners know how to find your amazing podcast, how to connect with you outside of this podcast and you know, learn more about your research and the work that you're doing. No, likewise. I think that you are brilliant in what you're putting out there. Thank you for having me. You can find me at Louisa Nicola on Instagram and on Twitter. And that's pretty much where I hang out. I have a podcast called The Neuro Experience and you'll definitely find me along there, any of those three platforms. Awesome. Thank you again. Thank you, Cynthia. If you love this podcast episode, please leave a rating and review, subscribe and tell a friend. 